Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 353. It's a lot of podcasts, isn't it, man? Hope you're holding up okay, whichever side of the Atlantic you're on and whichever week of madness you've had. You've either had that election week or you've had a lockdown to start. So, um, yeah, perfect time for some podcasts, right? And some podcasts that will distract you beautifully. Before we get into it, I thought it's worth mentioning over on my Instagram as a weekly thing on Wednesdays and a few other little extra bits, but I've started to upload spoken word performances of mine on Wednesdays onto Instagram TV, kind of as a realising that this this pandemic is never ending at the moment. Um, I mean, largely because of how it's been handled, but let's not get into that now. But I thought I'd give you something free to distract you. So yeah, there's like three up so far. There'll be another one going up today. So yeah, head to at Scroobius Pipio and click on Instagram and, and look at the little TV bit. There's a little TV icon that you can click and there's a load of, of live spoken word on there. This week's podcast is with a guest that people have been requesting for ages and I've wanted on for ages. I was nervous about to be completely honest because it's Benjamin Zephaniah and he's the one kind of person on the spoken word scene that I never cross paths with really. We talk a little bit about John Cooper Clark, who's a previous guest and we cross paths a few times. We got on well. He's a good guy. Obviously people like Kate Tempest, Polar Bear, um, all previous guests, Tim Clare, Mark Grist, Ross Sutherland, all these spoken word scene people who have previously been on the podcast all people I know and and, and friends with, but because we'd never crossed paths, I didn't know how this conversation would be, but it was amazing. It it was everything I'd hoped it would be. And Benjamin has some absolutely amazing stories. Genuinely, there's one story on this that is up there with any story we've ever had on the podcast. You'll know which one it is when it comes, because it involves another legend. It's amazing. So, Obviously, we're we're here. You'll hear us talk a lot about Benjamin's new show on Sky Arts. It's started now, so it's already available. It's already begun, and it's going to be amazing. I've seen one episode, and it was amazing. And there's more to come. So, yeah, let's just get into it. Rather than me tell you about it, let's let the man himself. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode three hundred and fifty-three, with the legend Benjamin Zephaniah. Are we rolling? Well, that's perfect. I mean, let's continue. Before we got recording, you were telling me about the Spanish flu, because, yeah, very different times. I was fascinated. You were just saying how the reason it was called called the Spanish flu. Well, yeah, I'm not. I'm no expert on it, but, um, yeah, the Spanish flu was called the Spanish flu because Spain was one of the few countries, Western countries, that didn't have censorship during the um, First World War. And so thousands of British soldiers were dying of it and American soldiers, but they weren't told about it. Wow. And the public weren't told about it. It was one of those things about keeping morale up and all that kind of stuff. But Spain, they didn't have censorship. So 
they were talking about it and everybody called it the Spanish flu. And I, I kind of got interested in these viruses because um, I, I had to do something which meant researching human beings' life on Earth. Right. Um, actually, it was for the David Attenborough project. It was a little film I was putting a poem to. Amazing. Um, but it's really interesting because, you know, when human beings started on the Earth in the very early days of our arrival here, evolution, whatever you want to call it, actually... To say that we were vegans or vegetarians is not quite nailing it. We were like grass eaters. We actually ate grass and leaves. Wow. That's what our ap- appendix were for. Right. You know? Now, even somebody like me who's a vegan, being vegan most of my life, I can take my appendix out and it won't affect my body at all yeah. because I'm not eating grass and leaves. There are some doctors who think that we should, when a baby's born... We should just take the appendix out because it's, it's no use, but it can poison yeah. you. It can kill you, almost kill me. Um, some other people say, no, just leave it. And eventually, human race will evolve out of it. We won't need it. It'll just disappear anyway. Anyway, but the point I want to make is that um, when we started hunter-gathering, and the hunter-gathering thing is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, we were kind of gathering 99% of the time and hunting just a little bit. We would only find an animal to kill once a year or so. And we weren't top of the food chain. We spent a lot of time running from other animals that wanted to kill us. Yeah. And then somebody came along, and I mean, I'm really paraphrasing now. I'm jumping over thousands of years. (laughs) But but somebody came along and said, instead of hunting animals, why don't we just get them together, get a male and a female, and start breeding them? And as soon as the human race started doing that, we started getting viruses. We started getting these coronaviruses that go from animals to humans. Interestingly, we didn't get them when we were hunting the animals because we weren't we weren't living with their urine and their saliva and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, we weren't putting all these animals together in little coops and little farms and stuff like this. It was when we started to put them together and breed them, and it got more complex. You know, if you had a, well, it wasn't a cow, then it was a bison or something. You know, if you had that animal there, and a virus jumped from that animal to you, that's one thing. Yeah. But when you put a chicken next to that bison. And the virus goes from the chicken to the bison and then from the bison to you. That's when it gets complicated. Yeah. And, you know, almost every year these viruses come out, but we manage to get on top of them. So this one has come out and we can't get on top of it. And the reason why uh, finding a vaccine is so difficult is because usually when you create vaccines, you must have an antidote. Because if I inject you with the vaccine, something goes wrong. I need to inject you quickly with the antidote. Yeah, the antidote, yeah of course. You know? But we haven't got one. So everything is really risky. This is new territory. Personally, you know, I I find this difficult to speak about because I kind of get emotional about it and I get angry about it too. I really don't like when people say these are unprecedented times. They're right. not unprecedented times. You've had them before. Yeah. Slightly different. We haven't had one for a long time, but we've had them before. And when they say they're unpredictable, you know, I know it's a butt of jokes. I am a militant vegan. We predicted this. We saw it yeah. coming. We've been going on about it for years. You know, if you mess with animals, you mess with nature, it comes back to get you. And it's not like we said it in an airy-fairy way. We've been talking about coronaviruses for years. And people laugh at us and, you know, because every time recently, most of the time viruses have got out, we've found a way of curing it, of of getting over it. I got swine flu. I almost died in this house of swine flu. Wow. But we had a vaccine for it, you know. I called the NHS and they, they left it at the door. I literally took the tablet. I stood, I sat there, and after about 15, 20 minutes, my temperature just went right the way down. Yeah. Just like that. 
Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And when people talk about this new normal and getting back to normal and all that stuff, I say, no, normal got us here. Yeah. <laughs> normal got us here. And if we are going to go back to this kind of strange relationship we have with the environment and animals, it's going to happen again. I'm no prophet. I'm telling you, it's going to happen again, Pip. It's just the way it is. Yeah. But the problem is we've got so many industries, so many industrialists and business people wrapped up in the meat industry. This is where their interests are, wrapped up in the destroying of the planet, that they're really not going to change their ways because they have no forward thinking. It's all about the bottom line for them. Completely. I think a long time ago, we switched our outlook on how we're doing as a race or as a country to be purely a financially measured thing. You look at the, the, the growth of countries and all that kind of, we, we, we generally rate the success of a country by their, their finances. And that's what has got us here is we're ignoring all the other problems, all the other issues of, of health, of mental health, of, of business practice, of, of best practice, because we're going, Oh, but look at our financial, our bottom line is really good. We're doing great at the moment. And that's what, that's what continues to get us here. Money make a rich man feel like a big man. It make a poor man feel like a hooligan. A one-parent family feels like a ruffian and those who have it won't give you anything. Money makes your friend become your enemy. You start seeing things very superficially. Your life is lived very artificially, unlike those who live in poverty. Money inflates your ego, but money brings you down. Money causes problems anywhere money is found. Food is what we need. Food is necessary. Let me grow my food and then can eat the money. Love it. I love it. It's perfect. But, and, and it kind of reflects that something that's being talked about a lot at the moment in, in the arts being kind of th- thrown away by the government and, th- and thrown under the bus because it's seen as a frivolous thing. But the arts is the documenting of history, the documenting of society, the documentation of, of, of our emotional evolution, our social evolutions. So it's, it's so, I mean, I can imagine the answer but how have you felt kind of seeing the government turn around and kind of go i'll retrain uh you know because again it's again if we go back to finances we look at the was it 300 or 500 billion that the banks were bailed out with when they caused an economic crisis themselves and the arts are turning around the arts again something that brings in huge amounts financially which seems to be the focus of a lot of the campaigns i don't think it should be because it shouldn't be about the money it's about the arts themselves but yeah completely kind of told i oh, just retrain it's not essential it's not important there's bigger things to worry about yeah they don't really value art um, no. and i think that's, that's something i've been saying for years the money that the government give to arts is is minuscule and actually within britain this is my personal belief basically they um hesitate when it comes to promoting the art because they see it as kind of left wing i mean when i was young it was like the arts was like the the loony left you know why are you yeah. giving them money to just you know, you're giving these poets money and they're talking about mrs thatcher well she's the prime minister they should have some more respect <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> the thing with art especially art that kind of art that we do is it comes from people and it comes from the grassroots upwards you know i've been to countries where they have a ministry of arts and, and that ministry tells you what art you've got to do. And it's just yeah. propaganda, basically, you know, and it tends to be a monoculture. And if you do anything outside that culture, you can, you can end up dead, actually. I mean, I have friends who have ended up dead in Nigeria and places like this, wow. Ken Sarawiva and poets like this. So 
when people are told to express themselves, they tend to rub up against the establishment. It's just the way it is. It's, 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 and it's not really a matter of left wing or right wing. It's just the way it is. Yeah. And the government kind of hesitate to kind of back the arts because they don't really see any value in it. Uh, like I just said in my poem there, it's all about making money for them. The arts makes a lot of money. Yeah. You know, but they still don't see the true value in it. And, you know, I think that one of the problems we have now, I think, is that when it comes to talking politics, that's what we're talking really, people generally, and especially people of my age and older, tend to think in terms of left and right and socialism, capitalism, and even communism. It's not really like that anymore. I think what we need, I mean, when I look at all these political labels, I have to say the closest thing I'm, I am is an anarchist. Yeah. Because they all kind of lead to a kind of dictatorship or a grab for power, a need for power. Mm-hmm. Anarchism is the only system I've seen where there's no power, so you can't grab it. Yeah. You know? But when you have all these systems, these isms, they're all kind of outdated in a sense. I mean, they're all about the workers putting down tools and kind of taking to the streets and all that stuff. Well, most workers are behind computers now. You know, it's not about men taking off their overalls and putting down tools in a factory anymore. You know, most people that kind of dream of a better life um, don't think, well, I, I must read Karl Marx. Yeah. Something like that. You know, it's what we need for the future, I believe, doesn't have a name yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It doesn't have a name yet. Um, we have to find some kind of revolutionary response that considers the computer age, the age of Twitter. I mean, when I was young, one of the things I used to go on about all the time, interestingly now, I find that when I'm talking to people, I keep going, when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but you know, one of the things I was used to go on about all the time was giving the people a voice, anything. Just give them a voice. If they recorded themselves on a Walkman, put it on the radio. And then I realised if you give people a voice and they're not educated, not thinking, they just talk bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, it it struck me when I first, I got a poem called Wrong Radio Station and I didn't, I didn't really know about the internet at the time. It was kind of going ahead of me. And some guys filmed me and they put it online on YouTube. YouTube was really new then. And then they called me in the middle of the night, Benjamin, we've gone viral. And I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I went to my computer, right? And I saw, obviously me doing the poem and then it says brilliant poem great yeah this brother blah 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 then it says go home you black bastard <laughs> and then somebody said don't say that to benjamin Zephyr. and somebody said this and, and then this whole argument started that had nothing at all to do with my poem <laughs> just, yeah. they just went off on one completely yeah. different and i thought i've been struggling so many years to give people this opportunity to speak, even if they disagree with what I say, to have an intellectual debate. And that's all they go down to. That's their bottom line. And I actually took the poem off the internet at the time. The guys were really upset because they said, because later we put it on and it didn't have the amount of views. Yeah. But but I didn't see the importance of it. You know, why is the view so important? I mean, I'm I'm of that generation that I still sell records, I still sell CDs and even vinyl, and I still sell books. So I'm not that kind of... You know, I mean, I have a presence on the internet, but it's not my be-all and end-all, you know? Yeah. So it's just really frustrating because people 
who know me from that time are people that used to think like me. I look at us now and going, well, you said give the people a voice and you got Johnson and you got Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's very difficult to argue with it. There was a, a line of thought, um, there, well, there is a line of thought with some people that says that you should make voting not just um, compulsory, but you should make it a subject in school. How do you vote? And so people should understand the parties. Yeah. Um, because to give people the vote who don't bloody know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, I saw interviews with people saying, with Brexit, for example, this woman saying, oh, I'm not so sure about it now. I voted to leave, but next year I'll vote to remain. Too late. You didn't realise. Too late. Or I've, I've, it, said, you know? I've said for ages, and it's, again, people tend to not agree because it is, it's, it's waiting, but I'd love it if all votes came with a quick questionnaire on the actual facts of it and, and your vote, yes, the power yes. of your vote is weighted on that. If you've got 100%, your vote is worth 10. If you've got 10%, your vote is worth one. Do you know what I mean? Because it's an understanding of the actual causes. It'd be amazing. I've actually never thought of it like that, but that's actually a good idea. Just answer this quick questionnaire probably, and then that'll, that, that, that'll yeah. let us know how much to value your opinion in this situation. I always come back to the, the Harlan Ellison quote. Um, are you, you are not entitled to your opinion. You're in, entitled to your informed opinion. No one is entitled to, to ignorance. And I think that yes. I end up quoting it on the internet so much because people come back all the time with, well, that's just my view. And if yes. I or someone else can turn around and go, yeah, but I can explain why your view is based on inaccurate f- facts. They'll still mm. come back with, it's my opinion. I'm allowed my opinion. It's like, well, no, yes. you're not. If you're being presented with facts that wrong. prove you wrong, you're not entitled to your opinion anymore. It's, it's, it's. But that's ignorance. a major, that's a major problem now, you know. I found myself being called to do a TV program or something because I've witnessed, as I did one time, a racist incident because I was a victim of racism. And then kind of almost at the last moment, they tell me that, oh, we're going to have somebody else with you for balance, you know, and they're going to give me a racist for balance. And I think, you know, that's not a valid kind of position to hold, you know, this is a racist no. person. And you're going to balance him with me. This idea that, you know, in the name of free speech, you should be honoured with being offered an opinion. No, I mean, you, you've, you've got to have, it's not that everybody's got to be a brain box, everybody's not got to be a deep intellectual, but at least you've got to know the issue. I mean, I don't respond much to people on the internet. And the reason why I don't is because on Twitter, I have lots of kids that follow me. They send me their poems and stuff like that. And I really don't want them to see that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, and I'm fortunate enough to be able to do my politics on question time or whatever it is. I can do it yeah. elsewhere, you know? That's what I think. And you can't have a deep argument with somebody on Twitter anyway. I came home from doing a television program one day and I looked at Twitter and somebody said, I've never heard Benjamin Zephaniah say a good thing about this country. Now, I remember being on that program and all I did was criticize the government didn't criticise the country, I just criticised the government. Anyway, I replied to this person just by sending him a lot of links, links to work that I've did with the British Council abroad, links where I've been promoting British culture in the Caribbean, in Asia, in different places. Um, I've got a book called We Are Britain, which is a celebration of British kids, and lots of other things. And interestingly, to his credit, he wrote back and said, I'm sorry, I take it all back. That's great. 
And I mean, I don't do Twitter much and stuff like that, but everybody I tell says that's really unusual. Usually yeah. people just hold their position, yeah. you know, but I think he couldn't argue with it. I think he went to the links and went, my gosh, look what he does. Yeah. You know, I am more patriotic than him in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he couldn't reply. He couldn't, he couldn't argue with it. And he just said, I take it all back. But I love that response from him as well, because he's, if, if his initial statement was, I've never seen him say anything positive. Well, now you have. Okay, now I have. I've seen him say loads of positive things about Britain. Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but 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 those b- b- beautiful moments are few and far between on social media. It feels I'm really quite, I'm anti it, but I know I'm addicted to it, and I'm part of the problem. But it's because of that I wanted to bring up a beautiful moment th- that happened on <laughs> Twitter a few days ago when I tweeted about um, us trying to l- line up a podcast, and mm. a-, a woman called. Laura Higgins shared a photo of her mum, Carol, at your gig, and it was one of the last things that she got to go to and one of the last things she spoke about before she passed. And it was – I stayed out of it because I wasn't part of the memory, but I I clicked a little like, and I've I've never meant that like more in my life because it was such a beautiful and warm moment that wouldn't have been communicated if it wasn't for social media. Yes, I mean, that is – a, a, a good thing and I've had you know a few moments like that and I remember her well yeah um and it was just you know the warmth and the hugs that she gave me after the gig and 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 I think she alluded to the fact that um you know she'd been going through difficult times and the family had been through difficult times but they made the effect the effort to come out to see me and um yeah I never take those moments for granted you see do you remember a program called um Blue Peter yeah yeah uh, yeah. The woman who devised that, she tells this story, uh, one of the reasons why she devised that program. She said uh, she used to watch some children's programs and, and she used to watch the program and I don't know what it was called. And she wrote to the program and the letter she got back was just a kind of photocopied letter. And she said it really hurt her, you know, yeah. because it didn't di- answer the question. She could see it didn't relate to her at all. Now, I don't know if you know this story about me. I've talked about it a lot. But when I was young, I wrote to Bob Marley. Right. And um, for a while he didn't answer, and then he answered. Wow. And it was like a handwritten letter. And I could see that he'd, you know, he'd read the poem and with the poems. And, and all I said was, you know, I'm this poet in Britain, and uh, and this is the kind of thing I write about. And I, I said to him, I, I think you're a poet too. And... Um, and then he wrote back to me a very short letter. Didn't say very much, but, but I remember he said, you know, Britain needs you, so keep doing what you're doing. Amazing. And then, and then I met him. And wow. it was really bizarre the way I met him. I literally was going, this is the late 70s, maybe early 80s. I've just come to London. I'm with two guys. They're taking me into the West End. And I'll never forget these two guys. I can never forget what they looked like. They were black guys with Afro, and they were both gay. And then... Being out black and gay was very unusual. Hugely, you know? yeah, of course. And they just, they said, um, they were going to a club and they were taking me to London. I think I was going to do some pickpocketing or something. And on the way, they said, I was just going to pop in and see a friend. And I think they were going to pick up some weed. <laughs> and I walked in the house and it's Bob Marley. And I'm like, what? And then I kind of said, you know, I'm the, I wrote to you some poems, you know. And, he, and then he started quoting my poem back to me, and I thought, this guy had read my poems, you know. That's mind-blowing. And yeah, yeah. And then, and I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter, not long before lockdown, I actually, there's a blue plaque on that house, and I unveiled it. 
Wow. <laughs> you know, and, I, and this is the very house that, that I met Bob in. But yeah, that, getting that letter <laughs> from Bob. This is the very weed house I met Bob in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the home of Bob's dealers. <laughs> well, well, there's a very funny story about, because the, the um, English heritage had to do some research to see if Bob Marley really did live there, because there's rumours saying he did and there's rumours saying he didn't. Yeah. And he got arrested by the police a few months before and he gave another address. So there was talk about, you know, why did he give this other address? Because people, a lot of people knew that he lived there, but everybody come to the conclusion, and I think this is from talking to people that day, that he had a little bit of smoke on him, but in this house he had his big stash <laughs> and he didn't want to give the police that address, you know what I mean? <laughs> so English Heritage started looking in the wrong place and then they realised, no, this is exactly the house where he lived. Yeah. Um, but my point is that when I got that letter from him, I just said, right, if I have any kind of profile in the future, I will reply to everybody that writes to me. Mm. And I must admit, I always did that. I always did that. I used to spend a lot of time before the internet writing letters yeah. to anybody. It could be a small child that writes to me. It could be an adult writing, disagreeing with me, whatever. I always replied. I must confess, since the internet, it's almost impossible to reply to everybody. Yeah. I mean, even if the messages are positive, you know, you, you can't reply to everybody. So that's kind of gone out to the window. But having said that, if they do take the time to write me a letter and put it in the post, I will reply to that. Yeah. Because I then that. I think they've made a real effort. Yeah. You know, completely. It's not just a simple th- th- throwaway t- typing on the train home. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how, how, how was it being a young, black poet in the UK in in the 70s and 80s? Because, I mean, around that time, you will have had, in America, the last poets blowing up and Gil Scott Heron and mm. people l- mm. like this. But w- was there much of a scene in the UK or a scene that you felt welcomed as part of? Or did you have to join in on, on the reggae scene that was blowing up? I know a lot of the early, s- speaking to John Cooper Clark, I know his poetry, he jumped on the punk scene. There wasn't particularly yes. a poetry scene for him, but the punk scene was there. No. So he was the poet Same on the thing. punk scene. Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. You see, when I started doing my poetry, I started to imagine this kind of reggae poetry that would work with reggae yeah. or without reggae. But if you did it without the music, you would still hear the music in it, you know? Yeah. You used to have these toasters that used to do this kind of toasting to kind of rap alongside reggae music. But I didn't want to be like them because they always just went for the rhyme and I wanted to say something a bit deeper. And um, I thought I was in a, like a little world of my own. This is in, you know, 70, in the mid 70s, 76, 77, 78. And I was always getting in trouble with the police and stuff like that. And um, I headed to London, basically. And I can remember in Alexander Palace, a Rock Against Racism gig. And it's mainly punk band, but there's some reggae bands there. Mm. And John Cooper Clark comes on. And his arm's in a bandage. He's fallen off a stage a few gigs before or something. His arm's wow. completely in a bandage, right? <laughs> of course. And he comes in and he does this poem about um, a woman from out of space or something. I can't remember what the poem was now. And I was just, I was like a real fan. I was just like, wow. And then a few months later, I heard Linton, Linton Crazy Johnson. Yeah. And he was even closer to me. And I was like, I mean, closer to me in style. Yeah. I went, yeah, you know, these are my people kind of thing. And I started doing gigs and uh, obviously became friends with both of them. But what happened for me was I started doing these gigs in like community centres, 
and small little venues like that. And when we started to hear about each other, I started to hear about John and he was hearing about me and Linton. There was a woman called Jean Breeze. Right. Um, she was from Jamaica. She, she now, she now has gone back to Jamaica, but she came over. There's a poet called Michael Smith, really important poet who went back to Jamaica and was stoned to death for his beliefs. That's why I'm wow. telling you, I know poets that have died for the words they've spoken. Amazing. Um, and, um, both Jean and Michael were signed to Linton Credit Johnson's label. He, he was quite instrumental in bringing them over. You know, and I can remember there was no scene really. We were creating it. And then an organization called Apples and Snakes started. Yeah. And I remember they tried to get me on their first gig and I couldn't do it, but they got me on their second one. Now, around about that time, maybe a little bit before, people were talking to me about, well, in fact, what happened was I got a gig at the Royal Albert Hall with Allen Ginsberg. Wow. Right? Now, I didn't know who Ginsberg was. <laughs> right? And so somebody said to me, you know, as they do, you know, it's like, you know, what are you up to now? And I'm doing a gig in um, Albert Hall. And I thought the Albert Hall was a big thing. Yeah. Because you know, everybody was saying Albert Hall, you know, and it, and it's big venue and all that stuff. And, and then I'd say with Ginsberg, and they'd be, Alan Ginsberg. Yeah. And I'd go, who's he? And then people would explain to me who he was. So we saw the back end of that kind of whole kind of hippie. Um, do you know um, uh, Michael Horowitz? Yes. Yeah, yeah. That generation of poets were just kind of, you know, their time is slightly gone. They were still yeah. around, Ginsberg and those guys, and but they were all getting on in age, you know. Kind of punk and reggae kind of blew them away to a certain extent. Yeah. But they were still cool. You know, I still did gigs with um, Horowitz and Ivor Cutler, people like that. But yeah, there was a bit of a void. And I can remember doing gigs in Brixton in a music hall. I mean, it was a place where bands played, but it was just poets. It was just like me, Linton. There's a brother called um, Brother Resistant from Trinidad, uh, Sister Netifa. And um, the organiser saying, you know, don't you need equipment for the band? And we were like, no, 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 it's just poets. And he just went... <laughs> Poets, this is a music venue. And we go, no, that's cool. Yeah. And I mean, at that time, Brixton was burning. There were literally fires every night. I mean, everybody knows about the big riots, but there were little mini riots all the time. And the guy was like, poetry in Brixton. Was, Watch out, man. And then every night we'd do these gigs and they would just be packed out. And I can remember having a conversation with Linton and some other people. And what I said was, I said, We've got to create, we didn't say spoken word. We said we've we got to create a poetry scene in Britain. And what I, I added to the conversation, I said, I want to see a time when a man or a woman will feel that it's really cool to take their date to a spoken word gig on a Friday or Saturday night. You know, you yeah. don't have to go dancing. You can go to a spoken word gig. And so when I see what's happening now, I, I, I do feel really proud. I go, you know, this is brilliant because this wasn't here when we were kind of, up and coming. There's a book by um, oh, Peter Fryer. It's called Poetry Business. And on the first page, I think it is, it's all about the poetry business, obviously. On the first page, it says, you've probably got this book because you want to think about earning a living as a poet. Well, you can't. And he says, um, he quotes, uh, he, he uh, talks about, um, Rod he says, Roger McGough, Benjamin Zephaniah, and I think he names two other people, he says, these guys earn a living from poetry. Why? Because they do workshops and they go on television and they do children and they do all kinds of things. But apart from that, 
there's no industry, there's no poetry industry. And yeah. at that time, he was kind of right. You know, there, yeah. there wasn't much going on. And we were kind of the only... There was a great poet called Stephen Wells. You ever heard of him, Swells? No, no, I don't think I have. A brilliant poet. And it, it, have you heard of um, Attila the Stockbroker? Yes, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Well, me, Attila the Stockbroker and Swells and Porky the Poet, who is now Phil Jupiter's, yeah. Yeah. we used to tour together a lot. And Swells, just one day, he just got really upset. He said, I can't earn a living from poetry. And um, he looked at Attila the Stockbroker and he said to me one day, he said, um, Attila the Stockbroker bought a house for money and from poetry. How did he do that? And I was like really embarrassed because I did too. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, um, but he didn't, I think he just didn't know how to organise himself, you know. And for some reason, he just literally turned into a sports journalist. Oh, wow. <laughs> Overnight. And he's really wacky writing, really brilliant writing. And he went to America and became a really well-known sports journalist. And unfortunately, he died He died on the same day as Michael Jackson died. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And he was a great poet. He used to have this poem. He used to come on stage and he used to talk about being a man, his first poem. And he, he's a skinhead. He looks like a skinhead. He used to wear the braces and everything, the boots, everything, you know. And he had that square look, that kind of... But he was a teddy bear you know yeah he come on he go like it's a poem about being a man and then he go on about a man being made of muscle and blood and a man is tough a man is a leader and then he'd end the poem by saying um a man is great man stand up he said if i was a man i'd be at the bar because only puffs read poems <laughs> <laughs> you know and he'd get all the women on their seat everybody would like What's he talking about? Then he, that line would make everybody smile and relax, you know. I love um, it. But Swells, he was a great poet. But he, he kind of, he, he said, I'm hungry, I'm too hungry. And we wanted to create an industry with venues, with organisations to support us. So when I see what's going on now, and when I see, you know, my programme, not my programme, our programme, Life and Rhymes, yeah, you know, I, I feel so much pride, you know, this is a, a spoken word poem on a kind of major station on British TV, never been done before. Well, let's talk about that because I, like, when I got the email about about life and rhymes happening, I had that similar excitement and pride as mm. as you were saying. And for years, I talked to people at the BBC about doing something like that and numerous other places, but hit the usual walls of, oh, we've done Poetry Month. Or, or we've we've got our poetry program. It's like, it doesn't have yeah. to be a, a tokenistic type. Here's our poetry yeah. month for our shows. So to hear that you'd got this show on Sky Arts, and then I've watched the first episode, and it has that feel of of a poetry night. You know, you've you've yes. obviously you've had to do it in pande- pandemic times, but it kind of adds yes. to the beauty of being like outside in a on a bandstand and people mm. being a bit distanced and. All that. So, so how was it to to realise that dream and tr- and try and recreate it? I guess for for TV. Well, when I was approached by it, I was approached by one of the guys who was the um, I guess he's credited as an executive producer, Isaac. I was like, because of what you just said, because you know we've been talking to the BBC and other people about it for ages, and we get these things, you know. Well, there's this, there's this uh, show and we have a little poetry spot at the end and all that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. I mean, I'd, I've been a guest poet in loads of programmes. I've been on the tube and everything, but nothing dedicated to spoken word poetry. But that's how it was at, at, at gigs as well. I remember early on, there'd be, it'd be an acoustic night 
and then oh you can get up and do some some poetry at the end and then five years into my kind of career you'd be like oh there's a poetry night and we might have someone do an acoustic song at the end it's like yes we've turned it round we've turned it round that we can have the night as poetry and that's yeah that feels like that's been the case on this as well (laughs) and we had to find a way of making it work obviously we had to think about it and I thought you know we don't want to make it an hour because we want to leave people wanting more yeah completely so we decided in half an hour and we also wanted the kind of excitement of a live gig, hence the open mic yeah. kind of thing, you know? That's the bit that um, excited me. Like, when I saw there was an open mic, I was like, oh, how's this going to work? B- because yes. of knowing, because open mics, for people who don't know the spoken word scene, open mics can be key to spoken word gigs to get an audience there, essentially. I mm. mean, let's be blunt about it. If you want people in the crowd, you make it an open mic because they get to get up and do their bit. And then at least we're all getting a crowd in those early those early days of gigs. So, yeah, I was interested to see how it'd work. And I thought it worked amazingly. And also, open mics can, especially in this context, just flop, just be a failure. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, so we, we don't know what we're getting. I remember when we first did the first one and we had the open mics and I thought, oh, first of all, you know, they're a bit long. And, you know, how is it going to work? But if you've seen it, you've seen the way they blend them together. Yeah, and I, I thought think it was amazing. It beautifully. Because yes. I had the exact same caution. I was like, I like that there's an open mic, but I might end mm. up fast forwarding some of the open mic. Because as I said, I've, I've got yeah. that experience of being at gigs and being, oh, I want this person to finish now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> When's this yeah. going to end? But it's, yeah, exactly as you say, because they kind of, fade in and out and blend in between and just give the the good punches and these these great lines and responses from the audience the moments it hits i thought it worked perfectly it caught the the best bits let me ask you 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 saw the first one yeah so you saw like kid and nancy doing i'm so straight no i saw harry baker oh no you didn't see the first one then oh which one did i see i saw i saw harry fury saw the gecko so I think you saw the third one. The third one, right, maybe. Well, okay. having said that, I've got to be careful because I don't know what order they're going to be <laughs> shown in, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I saw uh, an episode. So I thoroughly to... enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know what order they're going to be shown in, so that's going to, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the open mic is uh, a really interesting. And I, I really like doing it because there's such, so much tension in the room. And I'm, like I said, I'm really proud of it because I can just see that the format works. On the first night, the reason why I asked you if it was the first night, because on the first night, it was the night that that hurricane hit London. I mean, whatever right. it was called, it had a name. I can't remember what it was called, but um, yeah. it was it was so difficult. And I had to remember, you know, the format of when to go up and when to meet people and how to introduce them and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's not a fixed script, so I'm just doing it off the top of my head. I had to remember all that stuff and my clothes are blowing around and everything's at one point there was like a massive explosion and some electric went and they had to fix that and all this oh, kind of wow. stuff. And the audience were there all night and they had to put umbrellas up. They put the umbrellas up and then the rain came in that direction, you know, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> then, and I came off stage and I went, Oh, this is not because it was the first one. I went, this is not going to work. And there were people from Sky there and I went, mm, yeah, you're not going to do this, are you? And they were like, Benjamin, this is wonderful. <laughs> this is, you know, you should amazing. see it through the screen. And then I went and looked at it through the screen and it looked amazing. Yeah. It looked really gothic. 
goes like there's like lightning in the background and there's the poets on stage and the lanterns are blowing and everything and the rain and it's really atmospheric the first one i love it uh, but being there was a bit difficult and it's a bit like i don't know if you've done a film or a music video where it's been really tough because it's really cold or something but then you see it and you think well it was worth it you know or you've had to do a million takes or something but you know you've got it right in the end completely all those best moments are, are horrific in in the moment and again also i think it's something of the performer in you as well that I, I always know that i'll do a gig and i'd remember the few bits i didn't like about it rather than all the bits that went really well because the yes. bits that went well i've trained that <laughs> that's what yes. i'm there to do and <laughs> yes. to me that's the standard i should be keeping that standard so it's the bits that go wrong so i love that you came off going it's not going to work, is it? And they were all <laughs> jaws on the floor, like, this has been amazing. Like, oh, really? <laughs> I didn't realise that. So, so so, how was it, how did you find that kind of, because was this show already planned pre-pandemic or is it something that yes. you had a plan for and you had to change it to adapt and fit? Uh, uh, both. It was like planned, well, I'll tell you what happened. Ruth. About four years or so, I did actually. I did the one show, yeah. And some cats turned up outside, and um, there was this one guy and two girls. And I gravitated toward the girls because they both did the exact martial art that I do. Right. There's not many practitioners of the same martial art, the same style that I do. It's called Chen Tai Chi. And so outside the one show, we were like doing Tai Chi. <laughs> And um, and this guy was with them, and he wanted to talk to me, and I'm like, I'm doing Tai Chi, bro. <laughs> you know, with these girls, <laughs> and um, he was really patient, and he waited till afterwards. He went, look, man, I got an idea, and you're the man for it. We want to do a spoken word poetry show on, on television. Like I said, I was like, yeah, that could work, you know. What I mean, but I've tied with that idea, and I know other people have, and they've been knocked back all the time. Yeah. And he said, well, no, you know, I think. I've given this a lot of thought and you're the person and uh, we can do this. And so I said, okay, let's talk about it. So we talked and we talked and we talked. Then we went to Sky and Sky were keen, keen, keen. Then they brought a production company in and it was every time we had a meeting, there was progress. So you knew that this wasn't bullshit. Yeah. And then, so I can't remember the exact dates, but like the day that lockdown officially started, like about two weeks after that, we were supposed to film the first one. Right. And you remember when lockdown happened, it was like serious lockdown. Yeah. Right. And and just mystery as well. People weren't sure, oh, this yes. will all be over in a month. This might be on for the, you know, there was yes. such vagueness. Some people think the world's going to end and all that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that's it. And the, that guy kept coming back to me and saying, you know, we're going to keep this going. And I'm saying, hey, I, I, I don't know if you remember around that time as well, there was a lot of talk about especially in London and Birmingham and Manchester, the big cities, how disproportionately black people were being affected by the virus. Yeah. Especially black men over 60. Come on, that's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And then they're telling me, come to London to do a spoken word gig. And I'm going, ah, <laughs> I'm all right in my village. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm all right here. I can just put on my reggae and I'm just cool here. Let it happen. Yeah. I'll come out I later. I fit in every, every box that they're warning us about. <laughs> I'm, I ain't going nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they said, look, we're going to find a, you know, a, a way of doing it. You know, within gov- everybody talks about government guidelines. Yeah. 
fuck government guidelines. Government have got the guidelines. Boris Johnson got it. Trump has got it. And they've got yeah. their guidelines and they've got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got to go beyond that. I say, you know, don't tell me about government guidelines. What are you going to do to protect me? Yeah, yeah. You know? And so we had talks and talks and talks. And in, and in the end, they came up with this format. And one of the things that really got me, you know, was when um, I think it was Isaac that said, almost every poet we've spoken to hasn't done a gig for ages. They need a gig. They need a bit of money. Yeah. We've got money, you know, yeah. let's pay some poets. And then I thought, yeah, that's right. And I said, you know, if you can take care of me and we can pay some poets, let's do it. Yeah. And that was it. So this, you know, what we see really is, I mean, I'm not sure if this is the, the correct word, but this is what I call it. I call it the lockdown version. Yeah. Because if we do a new season and um, we do it with the vision we had before, it's going to take it to another level. Yeah, I love that. And again, it's 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 perfect as you you said there. It's an opportunity to give some poets a gig and to make this this beautiful moment. It's what I always loved. I used to run the spoken word at at, at festival, and what I loved mm. about it, at the main point was we we're in an amphitheater in the middle of the woods, and I knew that number one, I could give poets a payday, and number mm. two, I could get them their best. PR photo because because mm. them standing doing their thing in an amphitheatre with yeah. hundreds of people I was like yeah. it's it's win win thankfully yeah. the gig yeah. side of it is also a lot of fun but my mind as well <laughs> went to that that a, a professional side of it is I can pay them and they can have a good image or video or whatever else and that's what you need this is my personal belief actually it's not my personal belief this is a fact spoken word is the first art form. Mm-hmm. As soon as we started communicating, we started telling stories to each other, we started embellishing it, we started putting it into rhyme, we started playing with it. And when you did that, people started sitting down and listening to you. Lots of things have been happening since then, you know. Somebody came along and said, hey, do that, and I'll put a drum to it. And they started putting a drum to the spoken word. Somebody went, sell out, sell out, sell out, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, and somebody came along and somebody started strumming a guitar or, or a stringed instrument with the drum and the spoken word, and somebody went, Sell out, sell out, sell out, you know. And we've created all kinds of different art forms. But people speaking to people, I'm convinced, is the first. Yeah. And it's got sophisticated and we've got cameras and we've got all kinds of things. Everything that comes, people say the spoken word is going to die and it survives it all. But the industry hasn't given spoken word poetry the respect. When I was in the 80s, there was massive debates about whether you should call performance poetry poetry. You know? mm. I mean, people in universities having debates about this, you know, passive emotion that performance poetry is just doggerel, all that kind yeah. of stuff. And so a lot of people have resisted giving spoken word, in my view, the position it deserves, although it was the first art form. So having a program like this is kind of giving it status. And what my dream is this, and it may not happen, my dream is this, that that show is like where spoken word poets want to go. I mean, I want it to launch careers and I yeah. want people who perform there to feel, yeah, you know, I'm coming to one of the homes of spoken word poetry to know that when you get on there, I mean, the great thing is, and this obviously is, is, is going to happen, is that people who love spoken word will tune in. But there's some other people who will just watch the program before and will just be having a drink of tea or something and just go, oh, this is unusual. And they'll just yeah. encounter spoken word for the first time. You know, and you get a lot of spoken word artists like that. Um, I think it was Woodsy when we were doing the programme. Woodsy said that 
he did some music training and he was doing drama. And one day he heard a poet, I think he followed a girl into a gig or something, and saw somebody doing a spoken word poem and went, that's what I want to do. Yeah. That's what I want to do. All my music training and my drama training, it's all here. That's just me. And I'm expressing myself. I'm not doing anybody else's words. And he just went for, you know, his his whole thing changed. I I honestly think that stumbling upon it can bring some of the best creatives onto the scene as well. Polar Bear, my other favourite Midlands poet. um, Yes. A good friend always talks about how he was just rapping and he he did a spoken word night because he didn't have anywhere to go and rap. And he was like, I guess I can do it without the beat. (laughs) And then he becomes this absolutely influential and an amazing member of the scene. And it wasn't through any, he grew up with a love of spoken word or even a knowledge of spoken word. Mm. And then George the poet says something similar. Yeah. You know, George the Pope was rapping and rapping and he said he realised it was very superficial and then he heard some spoken word in it. And that's why he's called George the Poet because he didn't want to be George the Rapper. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I I loved what you were saying earlier about always having kind of music under under your poetry in your head because I had exactly the same. Like when I moved from spoken word into having music there Mm. loads of people ask oh how was that transition and i'd always be be like i mean it's nice that you can hear the music now but i I was always hearing the music it's it's nice that it's got through to you guys but the music was always there for me so it's not been a transition it's not been a a a period of change it's just oh you can hear it as well cool you know Derek walcott are you familiar with Derek walcott yeah um yeah he was asked a question once, and again, this is in the 80s, when they were pitting performance poets against paid poets. Mm-hmm. And he was actually speaking in the context of black and Caribbean and African poets. But I think this applies to lots of people. The question was to him, what do you think of performance poets like Benjamin Zephaniah? You know, I guess underneath that is, you know, are they poets? Do they have merit? And he said... As far as he was concerned, even he, who's like famous for writing poetry that lives really on the page, he said, as far as he can hear and see, when Caribbean poets are writing poetry, I think he may have even said black poets, they are writing, hearing the voice of their words. Mm. It's not just an academic exercise on the page. They can hear the music in the words. And I think that also applies to people like you from what you're saying. You know, you yeah. hear the musicality in it anyway. Yeah. And I think that comes from anybody that's been around hip hop and reggae and stuff like that. You can hear the musicality in the word, you know, it's, it's a bit like just a moment ago when I was just dropping those few lines yeah. and you were, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm been along 100%. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I um, left Birmingham and I came to London and I, and I had these big ambitions, right? And one of them was, I said, I want to do a gig in front of an audience and I want to do my poetry and I want them to be dancing. There's going to be no music there, just the words. And in one of the first gigs I did, and funny enough, I think it was in the same venue with John Cooper Clark, Alexander Palace. In those days, Alexander Palace used to put on big punk gigs, you know, The Clash, yeah. The Ruts, Sham 69, Misty and Roots, Oswald. I came on stage and I was like, this poetry is like a rhythm that drops. The tongue brings a rhythm that shoots like a shot. This poetry is designed for ranting, dance our style, big mouth chanting. This poetry won't put it to sleep saying, follow me like your blind sheep. And I saw people in the audience just dancing, you know what I mean? I went, oh, 
it's happened already. You know, my first major gig and I've achieved my ambition. I can retire now. (laughs) But they they hear the music in there. And I guess, you know, those are cats that were listening to punk and reggae. So they got it straight away. Yeah, they got the energy of it. I'll, I'll start to wrap things up, but I wanted to ask kind of, it's, it's something you've touched upon there is how's it been kind of dr- drifting between the disciplines from p- performance poetry to, to page from plays to novels, to kids books, to autobiographical work, to music. You've kind of gone all over the place in, in your career. Has that felt n- natural or has it been, or has it been a case of, I got them dancing. I've now got something else I want to have as my my down the line target. Let's go no, for a novel I mean, or a, a collection of poems or whatever else. No, the the, the novel idea was was um, suggested by somebody who knew my poetry very well. She was yeah. my editor actually at Puffin when I used to do my children's poetry, and um, she went to um, Bloomsbury on the understanding. Bloomsbury offered her a job, and she said I would accept the job on two conditions. One was that she published Benjamin Zephaniah as a novelist and not a poet. And the other was much more important than that. As he was working for Puffin, she was told to reject a book that she'd read about three times. And she was told to reject it three times. And she loved it. And she said, I must publish this book. It's called Harry Potter. Oh, wow. And that's how Bloomsbury got Harry Potter. They got (laughs) her. That's mind-blowing. They got me and Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. Man. And I remember a, a little while after that, I remember be having dinner at the Edinburgh Festival with her and Joanna, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. And um, I didn't know who she was. And I said to her, what do you do? And she said, well, I've written this book called Harry Potter and it's flopped. And I'll never forget Emma, that's the editor. She said, oh, no, we've been looking at the sales and they've picked up recently because they'd spent all the budget yeah. for the um, advertising. But it was word of mouth. It was kids dressing up as characters and all that stuff yeah. that made it kind of have a life of its own. And a few months later, I was at home watching television, and then I saw it, I went, oh, yeah, it's happened, you know? Yeah. But that's how I became a novelist. Another thing just happened, people see things in me, and they come in and say, I think you can do this, I think you can do that. I think that your approach, okay, if you only see yourself as an Englishman, are you born in England? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, if you only see yourself as an Englishman, a white man, or whatever, you know, you are going to kind of be you're going to limit your imagination. This is my opinion. You must understand that all the borders are fake. All these borders that these politicians put up are artificial. Yeah? The idea of the nation state is fake. It's a new idea. Think of yourself as an internationalist. Yeah. And that's how I think of myself when it comes to creativity. You know, I may be born English. You may be born English. I may start as a poet, but I'm a creative being. And wherever yeah. creativity takes me, you go there. I love it. You know, you may have an idea, but you're trying to force it into a poem. And it maybe it's a novel. Maybe it's a novel. Don't just sit there going, well, I'm a poet, I'm a poet, I'm a poet. Do a novel. Yeah. You know, you may have an idea for a novel, you know, 40,000 words, but actually you managed to say it in a couple of hundred. Well, it's a poem. Leave it. It's a poem. <laughs> yeah. You know, you may have something where you need other people to come and work with you. Well, maybe it's a play. Maybe it's a play. And that's why when people say to me, what do you do if they don't know me? I find it really difficult to answer. I usually I'm exactly end the up, same. Yeah. I usually end up by saying, this is my way out of it. I end up by saying, do you mean what am I doing now? <laughs> yeah. 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 Because your job is being Benjamin Zephaniah. That, that's literally what your, your just, job is. That, that yes. could be a million 
different things or a different thing each week, but that's what your your role on this earth is to do. It's just being a creative being. Benjamin Zephanow yeah. is a creative being, and I'll express myself in many ways, and I just don't know what's next. I really don't know what's next. I know what I've got contracts for. Or yep. I've got any contracts. I know the kind of things I've committed myself to. Yeah. But when they are done, really, who knows? Uh, you know, I just, I mean, there are some things I envisioned myself doing. I thought possibly I could do a novel and a play and stuff like that. But I never thought, for example, that I would create an ex- exhibition. Right. You know, and I've done that on quite grand levels. I've done it at the National Portrait Gallery and I've done it for um, the Cosler Trust with prisoners. Prisoners Amazing. artwork, you know. Yeah. I couldn't have imagined that. So we've just got to be creative and not get boxed in by the borders that define our nationality or our creativity. I love that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap things up by talking about another area that you've not been boxed in. I was so excited to see you in Peaky Blinders. And, I, and, and there's a, f- a, a few reasons. Number one, the UK has a big problem with representation, particularly in period pieces, because we're scared of it scared of our history scared of admitting our history of 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 people that aren't white in the country in 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 those days but as much as anything seeing you represent the midlands you know that 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 isn't representing enough stephen knight who's been on the podcast i did a series with him called taboo and shaheen bay are both big on getting the representation of the midlands on tv so to have someone who's been such a key part of that, of spreading that accent and that experience in Peaky was amazing. So, so how was that and how did it kind of come about? Now, I don't know if you know this, but um, Stephen will tell you, I think, I'm pretty sure I heard him say this, I was the first person cast for it. Wow. He knew when he was writing that part that it was me. Yeah. And it you shows. know, I'm ba- so this is not tokenism. It's yeah. based on a real character. Yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know it was, a, it was a real character. Oh, yes. There was a real character. And Stephen's grandparents, I think, knew him. So he heard them talk wow. about him. His real name was Jimmy Jesus. Right. He fought with this battalion from the Midlands in the First World War. Back in those days, there was lots of black and Asian people fighting for the British, right? But they were always in their own battalions, you know? Is that the right word? Battalions? Their own yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, fighting groups, right? But for some reason, this Jamaican was with this group from Birmingham. And he went back to the Caribbean. And then he missed his buddy so much that he came back to Birmingham and used to walk along around the streets, a friend of the Peaky Blinders, but kind of preaching hell and damnation to people, but at the same time being connected to the Peaky Blinders. So um, this is not like... Oh, it's a period piece. We have to put a black person in there. This is a genuinely a, a character yeah. that really was around then. And um, like I said, his name was Jimmy Jesus. And for some reason, when we were going to do the first shoot, there was some legal problem that meant we couldn't use the word Jimmy Jesus, the, the name Jimmy Jesus. Jesus obviously can't be t- copyrighted. Yeah. But I don't know if it was because of his descendants or something like that. I really don't know what the story was. Right. And so me and Killian were talking and we went, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, yeah. And if you look at the first couple of episodes, when Killian addresses me, we were having this bit of a laugh in the dressing room and he kept going, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. Because I was telling him about a friend of mine from Zimbabwe. He's got the same first name, a second name, Cherikia, Cherikia. Right. right? And he kept going, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. So you see when he greets me, he goes, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. <laughs> and it's this kind of laugh we're having with each other off stage that we brought kind of onto the set. 
And that's how the kind of name came about. But I can remember, Stephen probably doesn't want to hear this, but I remember me and Killian, the, 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 one of the first scenes from the first episode was me standing on the street preaching. Yeah. Killian comes passing a, on a horse. I kind of wink, wink to him to tell him that things are cool. And then he goes past. And I remember we filmed that and me and Killian sat down and we said, a drama setting the 1920s in Birmingham, gangster. It's not really going to take off, is it? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, well, we do it. We do it. It's a gig. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as it came out, it just went, you know. It just went nuts. So th- yeah. th- there is more of that to come because I know it was just setting up to start filming when the pandemic That's hit because right. I, I got offered yes. a role in it, but it clashed with a thing I'm doing at the moment on right. another show. So it's was, it was one of them, but right. it's exciting that, that there is m- more to come. Do you know any more of when the world will be getting no. back to normal on that? Because it's such a, no. everything's on hold, right? I was talking to Killian recently and he said he thought it was going to be January, but I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, just the, the, the state of the world, I just don't yeah. think that's going to happen. We it, we can't do a socially distance Peaky Blinders. Interestingly, 100%. 100%. Interestingly, I mean, Steve writes in sequence. I mean, well, he, he puts out the, you know, so it starts at the end of the sec- First World War and yeah. he's got this plan for it to go up to the Second World War, right? Right through to the Second, yeah, yeah, yeah. If we would have gone back to the end of the First World War... We could actually have masks on and do social distance yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's what happened, you know, the Spanish flu. Yeah. We could have actually done it, ironically. Yeah. <laughs> he, he needs to quickly write a, a previously on episode series. Yes, yeah. <laughs> a prequel yeah. and go, here we go, we're all in masks, it's fine. Yeah. I love it. Well, I'll, I'll wrap things up there. I was going to ask what's ahead, but obviously you've got the TV show, you've got a new book. You've got a play, yeah. you were saying. So there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot going on still, but My but university. with a lot of uncertainty, I guess. With how yeah, and- well, those things are those things are definitely happening, obviously. And then I'm going to do my university teaching. Yes, and there's nothing uh, major. There is, but I can't think what they are. I'm, <laughs> I'm useless. I'm, I'm useless when it comes to that stuff. Um, but the, the the thing is, whatever happens, I'm going to stay creative. Yeah. yeah. Um, even if I never leave here for the next six months, I'm just going to stay creative. And, uh, we just don't know what the, what the, what the near future is. Like I said, the important thing for me is that when we get out of this, it's going to sound a bit cliche, but we have some kind of national, international conversation about what got us here. Yeah. And, um, trying not to make it happen again. I mean, I know that's real wishful thinking, but I think. The way that we are encroaching on rainforest and encountering new animals and things like that is going to happen again. It's all about rainforest. It's all about the environment. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. There are some animals that shouldn't mix with us, and they know it. Yeah. I mean, that's why They're they live where us. they live. They want <laughs> yeah, nothing yeah. to do with us. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We are encroaching well, on their territory. We really on are. That well, note. <laughs> yeah, on that sad Sorry. note. But thank Sorry, you. I don't want to depress you for your time. No, I, th- I think you're completely right, though. Again, the whole being aware that tr- trying to get back to normal isn't the way because normal is what mm. got us here. And people s- seem to forget that it's been year after year after year of people going, "Oh, that was a bad year, wasn't it? Yeah. Next year will be good," and then it's worse <laughs> and then worse. It, it means we we need to make a big change because each year it seems to be 
can't wait for this year to end. And then the next year happens, yeah. you're like, yeah. oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, as a creative person, that we all make mistakes and we all kind of do a first draft that we have to rewrite. Yeah. The, the, the thing is that you learn from your mistakes. Yeah. And if the people who rule over us, the people who make the dep- important decisions are not learning from their mistakes, we really need to be revolutionary. Yeah. We really need to rise up in whatever ways we can. You know, um, I feel more revolutionary now than ever. Yeah. yeah. And and that revolution can't s- simply take place online either. It it has no. to oh, no. has to make its way into the real world and be yeah, yeah. yeah to cause real change. Well, thank you very much on that more positive and revolutionary note. That's the perfect place to end. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. I'm, I'm glad we got to do this. I said, I was, it's weird that our paths have never crossed in the past. So, so I was glad that we yeah. could sit down and, and have this chat. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Peace. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. How good was that? I told you it was a strong one. Um, it felt like we could have talked for hours. I was glad to get a little bit of Peaky Blinders chat in there at the end. But yeah, amazing dude. I hope you enjoyed that. If this, if this was your first time tuning in, all the spoken word artists I mentioned at the beginning, go and ch- check their episodes out. Also check out the Don Letts episode, because weirdly... He he also had an amazing Bob Marley story that I think you'll really enjoy. So, yeah, I had a great time talking to Benjamin and it really, it got my mind all fired up and excited about a million different things. So, yeah, thank you for that and thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with some more legit icons. Two, you know I rarely have two people on at once. I've, I've done it a few times this year, maybe once, maybe twice, other than Drunk Cast, but... Yeah, these two I could not say no to, but I will let you know about that next week. Until then, just try and stay sane, ladies and gentlemen. I genuinely hope you're good, and I'll see you next week.